if you do have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 32. We're continuing our study of the book of Genesis, and our main character at this point in the study is still Jacob. We've been following Jacob's story for a number of chapters now. Um, Ever since he was born, he has been instigating sibling rivalry with his twin brother Esau. Literally, from the moment of birth, he came out of the womb clutching his twin brother's heel. A few years later, he, uh, he's, he, he purchased his brother's birthright uh, by tricking him into buying a bowl of soup at, with his birthright. Uh, a few years la- after that, as young adults, he went even further. He had full-blown deception, and he deceived his father into thinking that he was his brother Esau, and he tricked his father into stealing his brother's Uh, blessing, the blessing of the firstborn son. As a result of this treachery, Esau, seeking revenge, plots to murder his brother after his father dies. And so uh, Jacob runs away. He escapes to Haran, partly to run away from his brother and partly to uh, find a bride. And thus began the the saga of the Jacob versus Laban Uh, travails that we have been following for the last several chapters. Uh, But that story, that chapter in Jacob's life is now over. It ended last week at the end of chapter 31. Now he is left Paddan Aram. He's on his way now back to Canaan, back to the promised land, along with his family, his servants, his flocks, and herds making their way back to Canaan. But there's an old nemesis from years ago that stands in the way, his brother Esau, the one from whom he had stolen his father's blessing, the one who had sworn revenge on his brother. Now, 20 years had passed, and Jacob's a different man, but what about Esau? What about Esau? Would he still harbor hatred for his twin brother, for what he did? Had he been waiting these 20 years For the moment to exact revenge on his brother. So with chapter 32 this morning, we are re-engaging with that sibling rivalry now between Jacob and Esau. But Jacob's not going to meet up with Esau in this chapter. In, In chapter 32, this is preparation for Jacob to meet Esau. And he'll meet him in chapter 33. Chapter 32 can be divided into two parts. The first part, the first 21 verses that we'll cover this morning, is Jacob making preparations to meet his brother. And then the remainder of the chapter that we'll cover in a couple of weeks is God making preparations in Jacob to meet with his brother Esau. So let's read verses 1 through 21 of Genesis chapter 32. This is the word of God. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed with him until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. 
And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come back and attack me, the mothers, with their children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when you see Esau, my brother, when he meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and, with, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege this morning of worshiping you. Thank you for providing us with the means and the opportunity to sing songs that extol you for your grandeur and glory and your grace and your mercy. And Father, now as we turn to your word, we pray, Father, that you would keep us in a spirit of worship that we are listening to your very breath as we read your word. And because that's what we believe that this is, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would do a work in us through it. And I don't pretend to know what that work is that you intend to do in myself and my brothers and sisters here today, but I ask that you'd do it. And Father, I pray that you would prepare us to hear from you, learn from you, and be transformed into the likeness of Jesus for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are four sections in this passage of uh, Genesis 32 that we're going to be looking at this morning, and we're going to use those four sections as kind of the, the outline to, to um, kind of steer our conversation through this this morning. First of all, in the first two verses, we see messengers from God. Then in verses 3 through 8, we see messengers from Jacob, sent, sent from Jacob to his brother. In verses 9 through 12, Jacob offers prayer to God, and in the rest of our passage this morning, 13 through 21, Jacob offers gifts to his brother Esau. So let's, let's walk through each of these sections looking for 
truths for us to believe about God, about ourselves, about our walk with Him, as well as biblical principles for us to apply to our lives. So first of all, messengers are sent from God in verses 1 through 2. Verse 1 starts out, Jacob went on his way. And so Laban, Uncle Laban, went back to Paddan Aram, went back to his homeland, and Jacob went on his way. And we're told that the angels of God met him. And I just love how, how understated Moses puts that. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. I mean, he was just walking along, minding his own business, and all of a sudden, they are there. The angels of God just met him. And note that there are multiple angels. This isn't one angel. These are multiple angels. And we don't know how many angels there were, but it was enough that when Jacob saw them in verse 2, he said, this is God's camp. So I don't get the impression this is like two or three angels that show up. This is enough to constitute a camp. Remind yourself, by the way, that Jacob's camp is filled with all of his sons, all of his family, all of his servants, all of his herds and flocks of camels and goats and sheep and donkeys and all of that. Perhaps thousands of livestock and people. And Moses equates his camp with this camp of angels. So presumably this is a numerous, this is legion of angels. Note the definite article there. The angels of God met him. I don't know if that necessarily means that all the angels that there were, but I get the impression this is a legion. This is a host of the heavenly host. They show up, and so Jacob calls this place uh, two camps. Mahanaim, which means two camps. Jacob's camp and the angel's camp. The Hebrew word here for angel simply means messenger. It's the same exact Hebrew word that we see in verse 3 when Jacob sends messengers to his brother Esau. And so these angels are messengers. They are messengers sent from God. And God sends these messengers to Jacob as he begins to make his way back into Canaan. And the question for us is why? Why does he do this? Why does God intersect his life at this point with this vision of this camp of an army of angels? What is their role in this story? What is their purpose? From the text, we're not given any clues to this effect. There, there's no conversation that's recorded between Jacob and the angels. There's no message that they impart to Jacob, at least not one that's recorded for us in Scripture. So we don't even know that they even had any conversation. Jacob just sees them. And so for, in order for us to discover their role in this story, then we've got to look elsewhere. And Scripture records for us three life-defining moments for Jacob where he, his life is intersected by angels. The one here in the first part of chapter 32. The one we'll see in the second part of 32, whether that's an angel or God himself or the pre-incarnate Christ, we'll see that in just a moment as he wrestles with one. But then there was also another one back in chapter 28 when he slept on a rock at Bethel. 
And that's the one which actually comes first in the chronological life of, of Jacob. That's the one that is instructive to us in trying to understand what the angels mean here in chapter 32. Back in chapter 28, you'll recall the scene. Jacob is fleeing from his brother Esau. He's fleeing out of Canaan. He's going to Haran to look for a wife and to flee from his brother. And on the way, he's tired. He needs rest, and so he stops to sleep. He sleeps on a rock, and then he dreams. And in this dream, he sees a ladder, a ladder stretching from earth to heaven. And on that ladder are angels ascending and descending from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven. And the Lord shows up to Jacob in that dream at the top of that ladder. And he introduces himself. He says, I am the God of Abraham and I am the God of Jacob. And he promises land to him. He says, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And he promises that his offspring will be numerous like the dust of the earth. You will spread abroad from the north, the south, the east, the west. And he promises them that in you and in your offspring, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then he makes the promise of his presence and his guidance and his protection and his providence as he leaves Canaan and ventures out to Haran. He says this, God says this to Jacob in that dream, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And Jacob awakens from that dream, and he names the place Bethel, which means God's house. Just as he does in chapter 32, he sees the angels, and he names the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Now, we've returned to that scene of Bethel a number of times as we have been recounting the travails of Jacob in Paddan Aram. As his uncle Laban tricks him into marrying Leah instead of his beloved Rachel. We go back to Bethel and we're reminded that even in that, God is with him. He's not asleep. He's still working. His hand of providence is still on him. As Jacob coerced, or as, as Laban coerced him, coerced Jacob into working for him for another seven years so that he would be able to marry his beloved Rachel, we go back to Bethel and we're reminded that God is still with him, that he's not asleep, his hand of providence is still on him. As Laban cheats him and robs goats and sheep from his flock, as he changes his wages 10 times over those 20 years, we go back to Bethel. And we're reminded that even in that, God's still with him. He hasn't left him. And he's still working even in those things. For 20 years, Jacob has been enduring hardship and discouragement and disappointment and deception at the hands of Laban and we've returned often to that scene from Bethel because it was there that God promised his presence and his protection for Jacob while he was in Paddan Aram and it was there that he also likewise promised they would bring him back to this place and so now Jacob as he 
comes back to this place, as he comes back to Canaan now, what does God do? He shows up again by sending these angels again. Perhaps the same ones that were ascending and descending that ladder at Bethel. Now they show up again as soon as he steps foot back in Canaan. So God's purpose in sending angels to meet up with Jacob at this point in the story is twofold. Number one, it is to remind Jacob that God has been with him every step of the way over these 20 years. Just just in case Jacob had begun to think that he had escaped Laban because of his own cunning or because of his own strategic thinking, the Lord sends a bunch of angels as if to say, these guys have been with you all along. Just as I have been with you all along. And they have been here protecting you, doing my work, keeping watch over you and your family and your flocks and your herds. This is a reminder to Jacob that the Lord is the one who helped him out of all those jams and patting around. And that he is the reason why Jacob now enjoys the blessing of God and the, the wealth of his herds and his flocks. God is the reason for that. Now, Jacob knew this. We know that Jacob knew this because he, uh, he said as much in his conflict with Uncle Laban in chapter 31 that we looked at last week. In verse, 31, verse 42 of chapter 31, Jacob said to Laban, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now, Laban, you would have sent me away empty-handed. In other words, if it wasn't for God, if it wasn't for Yahweh, I would be penniless right now. I wouldn't have a thing. But as it is, I'm a blessed man. I am a blessed man. I have a large family. I have flocks and herds, plenty. I am a blessed man, and it is due to the Lord's providence and grace. So Jacob knew this, but perhaps, perhaps he needed to be reminded of this. And how many times do we also, church, need to be reminded that God is present? Even when, and perhaps especially when, we are all right on the heels of a spiritual high or, or, or a spiritual victory. Sometimes those are the times that lull us into a false sense of security. Or worse, a false sense of accomplishment. As if that spiritual victory were a result of our doing and not the Lord's. And we need to be reminded, as perhaps Jacob was, that if it weren't for the Lord intervening in our life, we would be but dust. That's part of why God sends these angels to meet up with Jacob here to remind him that he had been with them all these 20 years in Paddan Aram. But another reason why God sends them is to encourage Jacob that he's going to continue to be with him as he makes his way into Canaan now and as he prepares to face his brother Esau, whom the last time he saw him was ready to kill him and exact revenge on him for what he had done to him. It's as if the Lord is saying to him here, Jacob, just as I was with you in Paddan Aram, I will be with you in Canaan as well. And I will be with you when you face your brother Esau. This army of angels that God sends to Jacob is meant to strengthen Jacob's faith in Yahweh. Strengthen strengthen Jacob's trust in God's providence. and, And embolden him in his faithfulness to God to trust God and to obey God no matter how scary it gets, 
even as he prepares to meet up with his brother again. And so immediately after seeing these angels, Jacob names that place two camps and then sets about sending messengers to Esau, his brother. But before we move on to those messengers, I want us to lean into these messengers a bit more. Why doesn't God send messengers to help us today? Why doesn't God send angels to us today? Why, and, and, and why don't we get the privilege of seeing a, a camp of an army of angels? Why don't we get that? If, if the purpose of them is to embolden Jacob's faith for a, for a scary time, then why don't we get that? Why don't we get to see an army of angels so that we are likewise emboldened to trust God and trust his promises in the midst of scary and frightful times. Why don't we get that blessing? A couple of thoughts about this. Number one, God does send angels to help his people today. He does send angels to serve us. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, and to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's, he's talking about the preeminence of Christ here. But he's saying, hey, to which of the angels ha have I ever said, sit at my right hand until I make you an enemy, uh, your enemies a footstool for your feet? And then look what he says in verse 14. Are they, speaking of the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Church, God sends out, even today, messengers of his, angels, to serve those who will inherit salvation. His children, the elect. God sends out his servants to serve us. Well, how do they serve us? Well, one of the ways that they serve us is they help us battle against evil. As Paul tells the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 6 verse 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. And by the way, he's not talking there about presidents and law enforcement. He's talking about unseen rulers, unseen authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. <clears throat> So in other words, these are, these are unseen battles that are waged between unseen but very, very real combatants. And the Lord sends messengers, servants, angels in part to wage these battles on our behalf. But just because we don't see them doesn't mean they're not all around us, keeping watch over us, protecting us mentally emotionally, spiritually, and yes, sometimes perhaps even physically. They are here. They're doing the Lord's bidding on behalf of his children, the elect, those who will inherit salvation. I don't know why we can't see angels today. Perhaps sometimes we do and we just don't recognize them. I think that's what the writer of Hebrews was alluding to when he says in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares 
And so they are all around. But typically, not exclusively, but typically, usually, we don't have the kinds of encounters like the ones that Jacob had here with the messengers from God. And I think that's because God has sent us greater messengers. God has sent New Testament believers greater messengers. We have two messengers from God, two words from God, two logoses from God that Jacob didn't have in his time. First of all, Jesus, who is the word become flesh, the logos of God. And secondly, the word itself, God's word, scripture, the word of God. And in both of these, we have a much better, much clearer, much more exact messenger from God than Jacob ever had. And if the purpose of this camp of angels, here's the thing, if the purpose of this camp of angels that show up to Jacob at this point in his life, when there's something scary that's happening, something fearful that's on the horizon, if the purpose in this moment and God bringing these angels to Jacob's sight is to encourage him in his faith, to trust in God, to embolden his faithfulness, to trust Yahweh more and obey Yahweh more faithfully. Well then, it's the same purpose for the messengers of God that God has given to us. For those who know Christ in a saving way, Jesus is always with you. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is always with you if you're his child. And the word of God is given to us to remind us of that truth and that promise. We abide in Christ by faith, and he abides in us through his Holy Spirit. And that truth, church, that truth alone, ought to be even better than the sight of an army of angels arrayed with battle armor, ready to do battle on your behalf, to know that Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is with you as you face whatever scary thing is on the horizon for you. It emboldened his faith, and that fact from our messengers from God should embolden our faith and our trust in the midst of scary things as well. So then Jacob sends messengers to Esau. So first we have the messengers from God that are sent to Jacob, and then we have the messengers from Jacob that are sent to Esau in verses 3 through 8. In these verses, we see the messengers given a message from Jacob to deliver to his brother Esau, and then we see them return, not with a message from Esau, but with a word about Esau that he's coming, and he's coming with 400 men. And we see how Jacob responds to this. First, a couple of observations about the message that Jacob gives these messengers. Um, We should note uh, that Jacob refers to his brother here as Lord. And he refers to himself here as servant. Now this should catch our attention. Because when Jacob was stealing Esau's blessing from their father Isaac, Isaac said specifically, as a result 
of Jacob having the birthright and Jacob having the blessing now of the firstborn son, however it happened, Isaac the father says Esau will be the servant and he says that Jacob will be lord over his brothers. And in fact, that was fulfillment of the prophecy that was given by the Lord to their mother, Rebekah, when she was still pregnant with the twins. The Lord said to her, the older, who is Esau, will serve the younger, who is Jacob. And so in, in calling Esau Lord and referring to himself as servant here, he is both defying God's prophecy and God's plan, but he's also trying to reverse the actions of his youth when he stole the blessing from his brother. The second thing to, to observe here about this message that Jacob gives these messengers is that he tells Esau how wealthy he is now. Now, I don't think this is to rub Esau's face in it and to, um, to, to say, hey, I, look what I've got now. Instead, I believe that what Jacob is doing in, in saying, I've got all this stuff now, is to say, hey, listen, I don't, I don't need the inheritance. I really don't. You, you can have the birthright back. You can have the blessing back. I, I, don't, I don't need that stuff. God has blessed me while I've been away, and I don't need that. You can have it. But in general, the message here is meant to appease Esau, calling him Lord, calling himself servant, saying, hey, by the way, I don't need dad's stuff. You can have all of that. He's trying to appease Esau in order to make him respond to him without violence, without revenge. And he's hoping that it works. Now, we don't have the benefit of knowing anything that took place between the messengers and uh, Esau. Uh, we, don't, we don't know anything about that conversation. All we're told it, when they come back is that they tell Jacob your brother Esau is coming, along with 400 of his closest friends. And we're told as a response to that, that Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Now, we probably shouldn't fault Jacob too much for being greatly afraid and distressed here. We would be too. These friends of Esau are armed men. This is an army. Um, Abraham drove out the eastern kings earlier in Genesis with less than this. Some 300 men that he had. And Esau has 400 men coming at him. It's understandable that he would be responding in fear and distress and anxiety here. But we should also admit that this is a lack of faith on the part of Jacob. His faith, however strong at this point, is still weak. It's imperfect. He's just been reminded that God's got an army of angels on deployment for his behalf. And then he, he sees or he hears about an army of men coming for him, and he melts. He's afraid. And so again, we see that though Jacob's faith in Yahweh is growing, and though it is much stronger, much stronger than it was 20 years earlier when he left Canaan, it's still imperfect. It's still got holes and there will still be times of weakness and vulnerability for him in his faith, and this is one of them. And we see ourselves here too, don't we? We all know that there are times in our lives when there are circumstances brought to bear that reveal holes in our faith, weaknesses and vulnerability in our trust of Yahweh. And God has great patience with us. We all know that there are times like this in our lives when something happens and causes fear to well up in us and 
causes us to respond out of anxiousness rather than faith. Jacob responds here to his fear in two ways. He plans and he prays. He plans and he prays. He plans by getting ready for the arrival of Esau and his army of men, by dividing up his family and his servants and his herds and flocks and all he has into two different parts, into two camps. It's a strategic, strategic move. It's a, it's a logical move that makes sense. He divides up all his stuff into two camps, so if Esau comes against one, perhaps the other will survive and make it. Commentators are split on whether or not this is exemplary for us. They're split on whether or not this is something that is good on Jacob's part that he does, that we should emulate, or whether it is something that is faithless and bad that he does that we should seek to avoid. The text itself doesn't help us here. There's no further commentary on what Jacob does here. All we know is that he splits them up into two camps. And then we know ultimately from chapter 33 that ultimately it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't accomplish anything whatsoever, either good or bad. Quick word about planning in the face of trials, in the face of potential fear. The Bible never discourages planning. The, the, the Bible never disparages planning. Uh, the Bible never disparages planning and being prepared for what might happen or discourages us from making plans in the face of things that might be fearful or scary situations. In fact, Proverbs is filled with uh, commendations to plan um, and, and contrast that with the sluggard who doesn't plan, in fact. But in all its commending of planning, the Bible also always elevates the Lord's plans above man's plans. Proverbs 69. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but the purpose of the Lord, that is what will stand. So for Jacob... He sets his plan, he puts a plan in place, he sets that plan in place, but the only thing noteworthy about it is it doesn't make any difference. It's not effective. It accomplishes nothing. But the other thing that Jacob does in response to his fear about Esau is to pray, and that moves us to our third section of our passage this morning, where Jacob offers prayer to God in verses 9 through 12. Now, this is the longest prayer of Jacob that's recorded in Scripture up to this point. And, and it serves as kind of a model prayer, just like the Lord's Prayer does in the Gospel. It's a, it's a model prayer of how we pray when faced with a scary and frightening circumstance on the horizon. And we can note four different elements in this model prayer. We should note first how he addresses God. He says in verse 9, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father, Isaac. And so he's recalling that this is, the, this is the God of his dad. This is the God of his granddad. And in saying that, he's recalling all of who God was for them. So he's careful in how he addresses them. He also addresses them by saying, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. In other words, he's addressing the Lord by reminding the Lord what he said to him. You're the God who said, for me to come back here 
and that you'll do good to me as, as I come back here. So he's, even in his address, he's pleading God's promises. He'll do that later in the prayer, but he, even here in address, he's, he's saying, you're the God who said this to me. So I'm counting on you to be that God to me now. Secondly, we should note in this prayer how he humbles himself. Look at verse 10. Love this, the, the, the posture of Jacob here. He says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. He expresses how unworthy and how deserving he feels that he is for all of the steadfast love that God has shown up, even the least of the steadfast love, and all the faithfulness with which God has treated him in these 20 years. He says, I'm unworthy of that. But in expressing his unworthiness, he's also expressing how grateful he is for God's mercy and God's grace that he's shown to him. Look at what he says. He says, when I left this land and when I headed across the Jordan into Paddan Aram, I didn't have a thing to my name. All I had was the staff. That was it. But God, you have watched over me, even through trials, even through challenging times, even through times where I didn't understand what was going on. And, and look what's come back over now. More than a staff. I am a blessed man, he says, with a large family and large herds and flocks, enough to fill not one but two camps, he says. I'm a blessed man. I'm unworthy of the blessings that you've poured out on me. Church, this is the right posture of prayer for us. This is the right posture of prayer, especially when we come before him asking for help. We don't waltz into God's presence demanding that Daddy give us everything that we, we desire. Instead, we approach him humbly, realizing and recognizing that we are undeserving and unworthy even to have the right to be in his presence, and yet thankful and grateful for the grace that he has shown us in Christ to grant us access into his presence through faith in Christ. He approaches him with humility. But we do come, we do ask, and that's what Jacob does next. Having rightly addressed God and rightly humbled himself before God, he now presents his request to him. And we note here how he petitions for help. In verse 11 he says, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mother with the children. He just lays himself before the Lord here. He says, Lord, I'm at your mercy. Would, would, you, would you protect us? Would you deliver us, Lord? And he's very honest and vulnerable with the Lord. Lord, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of Esau. And I'm afraid of the men that are coming with him. I know you've deployed an army of angels. And I'm trying to hold on to that truth. I'm trying to keep that vision in front of me, Lord, that you have sent an army of angels by my side that are with me now. I believe that. But, Lord, I'm afraid right now. I'm afraid. Because in front of me right now, all I can see is my brother and his vengeance and these men these bloodthirsty men coming after me i'm afraid lord he's very honest and vulnerable church 
Don't put on airs in your prayers with God. Don't put on airs. Don't put on masks. <laughs> don't, don't, don't pretend to be something that you're not. Don't pretend that you're not scared when you are. Don't pretend to, be, to, to not be angry when you are. Don't pretend to not feel hopeless when you do. Let's don't pretend with God. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Be honest with him. And then let him work on you from there. And then fourthly, note in Jacob's prayer how he pleads God's promises. He literally quotes God's words back to God in prayer. Verse 12, but you said, Lord, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He quotes God's words back to God in prayer. And we're to do the same. What, what a blessing to be able to do the same. Our word, the, the word of God, is chock full of God's promises to us. And we can pray those promises and plead those promises back to God in prayer. Quote scripture in our prayers. Now why do we do this? Are we reminding God of what he wrote? Are we reminding God of what he said? Of course not. What we're doing in this is two things. Number one, we're centering our prayers on biblical promises. We're centering our prayers on biblical promises, and that's important because it's easy to get distracted by extra-biblical or unbiblical desires and wants. And so praying these promises back to God centers our prayers on God's promises. What, what exactly did he promise me? Did he promise me a four-by-four, or did he promise that he will take care of me? It centers our promises on uh, our prayers on his promises. But secondly, it builds our faith that he is the keeper of his promises. It, it, it builds our faith that, that these are his promises. He's always kept his promises. And we look back at, at stories like this and we see examples of how he kept his promises for the patriarchs. He'll keep his promises for me. So praying these promises back to him centers our prayers on his promises and not our, our, not our extra-biblical desires and wants. And it also builds our faith that he is going to keep his promises. And that's important for us as we seek to navigate life, especially when it is scary. And so we pray, God, as you promised in Matthew 28, you promised to never leave me or forsake me. And so, Lord, even though it feels like I'm alone, I, I trust that you're with me. You promised to be with me. God, you promised me through your servant Paul in Philippians 4 that, that if I let my request be made known, that the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard my hearts and my mind in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, I'm letting you know my, what my requests are. And then, then I'm asking you, Lord, to keep your promise and, and, and give me that peace that surpasses comprehension that will guard my heart and will guard my mind in Christ Jesus. Know God's promises in his word, church, and then plead those promises back to him in prayer. So Jacob prays. He prays in response to this fear that he feels as a result of his brother approaching. He plans and he prays. Again, this is not a not knock on planning at all. This is not a knock on planning. But we should note that none of Jacob's plans in this chapter accomplish anything. Not a thing. It's as if he's spinning his wheels in needless activity. 
but his prayers do accomplish something. And we see part of what his prayers accomplished in the second half of chapter 32. And then we'll see another part of what his prayers accomplish when Jacob and Esau actually meet in chapter 33. But I'm not saying don't plan. Please don't hear me saying that. What I am saying is surrender your plans to the Lord. And understand that while many are the plans in the minds of a man, it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And I'm further saying that the one who humbly approaches God, biblically petitions God for help, and pleads the promises of his word and prayer, he is the one who will see God move in his life in mighty ways. In closing, one of the ways that Jacob plans, to, uh, Jacob plans here is to send gifts to his brothers. That's the fourth section and final section of our passage this morning. Not only does Jacob's plan in response to the fear and distress and anxiousness that he feels when he hears that his brother with 400 of his closest friends are coming after him, part of his plan is to split his camp into two camps. But the other part of his plan is to set aside a bribe, if you will, to try to buy off his brother and to appease his brother's anger. Verses 13 through 21 include this detailed list of this incredibly generous gift. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewe lambs, 20 rams, 30 milking camels with their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. Add that up. It's over 550 animals, depending on how many calves are with those milking camels. This is an incredibly generous gift. This is too much to be just a gift. And this is too much, I believe, even for a bribe. This is more like an inheritance, don't you think? And I think that's what's on Jacob's mind here as he sets this aside for his brother. I stole my brother's birthright. I robbed him of his blessing. And that's why he's after me. So I'll just put together what would amount to an inheritance and set it before him in hopes that it'll buy him off, in hopes that it will appease his anger towards me. Undeniably, this is Jacob not acting out of faith and trust in Yahweh, but acting out of faith and trust in his own ability to come up with his own plan, with his own solution. This demonstrates Jacob's lack of faith in Yahweh. It's, it's as if the vision of the army of angels in verses 1 and 2 are long gone. And his confidence and his trust in Yahweh now is replaced by confidence and trust in his own ability to work things out himself. And we see eventually that this falls flat on its face as well. But this can so easily happen to us as well, church. God reminds us through his word that he's with us, that his hand of providence is on his children. And we read that in his word and we believe it. But then something happens in life that rattles our faith. And we're tempted to take matters into our own hands. And some of our plans in that regard, some of them are benign. Perhaps like Jacob divided into two camps. 
We don't know if that really was good or whether that was bad. I, I, I think it was a demonstration of wisdom. I look at that kind of like we look at health insurance, right? I'll, I may not need it. I'm going to pay a lot for it. I may not need it, but if I do, I'm glad that I have it. It's wisdom. If, Jacob, if, if Esau comes and attacks one of the camps, then perhaps, like insurance, I'll, I'll, I'll still have the other camp. And whoever's in that will survive. And if that's what it is, then it was simply wisdom, and there was nothing wrong with that. And so not all plans that man makes are a demonstration of a lack of faith in God, but some are, especially when they violate God's truths and biblical principles. And that's what's happening here with this bribe that he sends to Esau. Jacob takes matters into his own hands and stops trusting God. He's trying to appease Esau's wrath by sending a bribe. Derek Kidner, a British theologian and commentator of the late 20th century, notes that Jacob is approaching Esau here kind of like pagans approach their gods. They know instinctively that they don't deserve to be forgiven and that their God is rightfully angry with them for something that they have done. And so as a result, they make sacrifices. They pour out libations. They perform all kinds of rituals and sacrifices. Why? To try to appease their God. To try to appease their God's wrath against them. And that's pretty much how every man-made religion works. Man doing or sacrificing something for their God in order to appease their God's wrath against them for something that they did to offend their God. And that's exactly what Jacob is doing here to try to appease Esau's wrath. But that's not how Christianity works. With Christianity, we do believe that we do not deserve forgiveness. We do not deserve grace. And we do believe that we stand rightfully under God's wrath against us for our offending him with our sin and rebellion. But after that, Christianity diverges from every other man-made religion in the world. For instead of sacrificing in order to appease God's wrath, Christians believe that the Bible teaches that none of us can do any amount of sacrificing that will get us any closer to our God. No amount of sacrificing, no amount of good works will make us acceptable to him. Nothing will remove the wrath that is rightfully on us because of our rebellion and offense against him. But all hope is not lost because God sent Jesus Christ to take that from us, to be the sacrifice for us so that by faith in Christ, his sacrifice pays for our sin. His death satisfies God's anger. And his righteousness is credited to us as if it were our own. And this both appeases God's wrath against our sin through the death of Christ and justifies us to stand before him as righteous because now we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ and not our own. And so if you do not know Christ this morning by faith, don't do like Jacob here. Don't do like Jacob and try to make a big enough sacrifice through your good works and your effort 
to try to appease God's wrath against you. God's wrath is against you. God's wrath is against all sinners, and we're all in that boat. But that wrath will not be appeased, and that anger will not be done away with, and the judgment to come will not be removed as a result of things that we do. But it is removed through Christ. He came, and he was the perfect sacrificial lamb who took away the sins of the world. He paid the price of all those who would trust in him for forgiveness, eternal life, and redemption. This Jesus, who was the perfect sacrificial lamb of God, is the one who ultimately fulfills all these promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. He is the one who fulfills the promise all the way back from Genesis 3 that there is coming one from the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. He will strike your head. He will strike your heel, but you will crush his head. There's coming one who is going to reverse the curse of sin and death. And this is the promise that is passed on to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that in you and in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How will all the families of the earth be blessed through the promise made to a family? It is because through that family, God would bring his son one day. And he would be the sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of those who would come to him by faith, not only of the household of Israel, but of all the nations of the earth. So if you've not trusted in Christ, I beg of you, be reconciled to God through Jesus this morning. Trust him for salvation, and then church, let us trust him even when those scary times come, because he's with you. He's with you. And let the reminder of his presence be like a vision of an army of angels arrayed in battle, ready to do battle on your behalf. Let's pray.